What is up, everybody? Welcome back to First Sound Rundown, where we give you a holistic view of the world of sports. Whether you're a casual fan or an avid fan, this is the place for you. We're your two hosts. I'm Hayden Bozar. He's Matt Bozar. Today is Monday, December 5th, and today is a very special day because we have our friend Mitchell Marcus back on the podcast. It's been it's been quite a while since Mitchell's been on the podcast, but he's he's on here to, today to talk some college football and some World Cup. He's I mean, he's he's a soccer guy, so he'll be a, he'll be a specialized guests in the world cup area mitchell is on the other end how are you doing doing pretty well glad to be back and uh hype talk about soccer as per usual and a little bit of college football yeah yeah for sure and then we've got matt on the other end of course you guys well yeah i'm you guys are probably tired of hearing matt's voice by now but uh matt i guess i guess you can talk how are you nobody could be tired of this voice okay because it brings everything that you come to the podcast for every week of the episodes so uh, I don't want to hear any more of that noise. Instead, you know, there's a lot to get to. But yes, obviously had to have Mitchell on. We did we did like a like a quasi semi World Cup, very, very small uh, segment. Well, yeah. it was actually a small topic inside of a segment of our last episode last week. Um, that was also before thank or no. Yeah, it was, two was, episodes it was before Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it's a lot of stuff has happened. Obviously, we had the group stage and. And and we got some requests from some fans to talk more about the World Cup. So, you know, of course, we're going to honor that uh, in this episode here today. But there's also college football to talk about because there's a lot of stuff that happened there. And then obviously as well, we, we got to talk about football, NFL. So that'll be that'll be last, though. I think that's probably the first time we've ever gone NFL as a last topic. And I love it. It means that we have stuff going on outside of just, you know, the regular the regular old uh, Sunday afternoon. So I love it. Yeah, that's right. I hope you guys enjoyed your weekend. I I sure did. There was a lot of good college football games on. I didn't even really really get to watch many of them, but it was a it was a very exciting weekend in sports and obviously the World Cup. I actually probably I watched more World Cup than I did college football, which is pretty surprising to say, but it only comes on every 4 years. So, I guess that's uh that's a good thing. So, with that being said, let's move it right into college football. So the college football playoff is officially set and there's some controversy regarding who got in and who was left out. Let's first take a moment to recognize that exactly what we were saying could happen last week actually did happen this past weekend. And that is the fact that USC and TCU both lost their conference championships, which is crazy, but we said it might happen and there was a likely chance that it would happen and it actually did. So let's overview this playoff and talk about why it was that the committee chose who they did to be in the playoff and why they placed certain teams where they did. And basically let's explain to the butthurt fans why their team either didn't get placed where they wanted them to, or why their team didn't get into playoff at all. Cough, cough, Alabama. So I'm going to hand this over to Matt to kind of start us off here with talking about the two teams that lost in their conference championships and why, why, why it happened why it was so likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, we told you it was going to happen. If you listen to the episode we did last week, we came on here and I was like, I would not be surprised if you have both these teams, USC and, and TCU, who are trying to save their seasons. They have everything to play for, lose in their conference championships as short favorites, because that was one thing I pointed out was like, okay, yeah, obviously you have LSU and you have, or sorry, you have Georgia and you have Michigan who, you know, are kind of playing for their conference championships. They're huge favorites, but they don't even need to win because they've been so dominant all year and they're the last remaining undefeated teams. 
so fine. And they both won, so it didn't even matter anyway. And so that was the discussion me and Hayden had was like, if TCU and or USC lose, like, you know, kind of what are the consequences with that? And I think we correct, we 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 really predicted it pretty perfectly. We, we really said like, you know, based on the style of play and, 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 and everything that these teams have done so far in the regular season, obviously USC had that one loss to Utah early in the regular season. And then ironically lost them again uh, in the Pac-12 championship game on Friday night. But we said, hey, TCU's won all their games, right? They haven't lost. They've been in some close games, but they've always been able to pull out the win. And so they're 12-0 and going into their conference championship, and they lose to Kansas State. And so we said pretty much, hey, there's a good chance just simply by the fact that, you know, all the teams were, were very good. And additionally, they were short favorites. So the underdogs in a game like that have a chance to win the game. And sure, it, it happened in both chances. And it's kind of like, it's so crazy to think everybody's probably like, how could you possibly lose these games? Like both of them lost. And it's like, that's whole, your entire season that you're throwing away. Well, yeah, but you got to think about the position that these teams are in. They have everything to lose. If they, if they either of them lose these games, their season could be out the window. And so they think about that the entire week leading up to the game. And, you know, you kind of walk into that game with your butt cheeks a little bit clenched because of how much pressure is on you to win that game. And that's what happened this basically seemingly to both teams. And, and, and you kind of come out on the other side being like, well, you know, it, it, it would have been nice, but it just didn't happen. And, and the other side of this is their counterparts in each of these games are teams that have everything or well, everything to win, nothing to lose, especially, you know, you're talking about Utah and Kansas state who they don't have a shot at the college football playoff, but they're also top 10 teams. And, but so what if they win or lose in their conference championship, they're still going to a bowl game and, you know, they're still going to be ranked in the top 15 of the, uh, of the country when it's all said and done. So that's kind of the, the mental capacity of each of these teams going into a game like that, that means so much to them. And, and it's, and it's almost like, you know, you're, you're just so focused on the fact that you have to win the game that it just kind of, sometimes it'll pass you by. So what me and Hayden discussed was like, okay, well, what if both these teams lose? What will the playoff scenario look like? And we did talk about it in terms of, Hey, TCU's won all their games and USC has lost one of their games. If that's the case, USC loses again to the same team. You know, we kind of, we predicted that Ohio State would probably make it in over that USC team. Whereas if TCU lost, well, they won all the regular season games. They shouldn't be they shouldn't be over. You know, they shouldn't be overcome by an Ohio State team or an Alabama team or a TCU or sorry Tennessee team or whatever who has lost either one or multiple games and didn't even play for their conference championship. So that was a conversation we had. We, we kind of said that, you know, even if TCU loses, they'll probably be in obviously Michigan and, and, and Georgia are on another level. So they would have been anyway. And then we pretty much said like, look, if, if USC loses, then, then Ohio state will probably get in. And, and that's, pretty much exactly what happened. And so the question becomes, you know, how, how fair is this? And so I'll, I'll kind of let Mitchell take over a little bit here, talk about, you know, his general thoughts on the, on the whole college football playoff. And then we can start to get in the Alabama talk because I have plenty of stuff to say on that topic as well. So go ahead. So obviously I got to preface all of this with RIP to Tennessee and Clemson because my South Carolina Gamecocks essentially took them both out of even a sniff of the playoff. So I just want to preface with that, but I honestly say it's really fair, the, uh, the teams they let in. I mean, what, I don't know if you guys watched the TCU game, whistle to whistle, but I thought they looked really good for the most part. They looked like a team that if on any given drive, they can go down and score a touchdown on anybody. That being said, they didn't do it every time, but I think it was really fair all the teams they let in. And although I didn't watch many of the others, I don't think any of them are going to touch Georgia. Um, Michigan, Ohio State, that game was also incredible. Either of those teams can potentially beat like one another, but 
I don't think anybody's beating Georgia. Watching them, I do watch them pretty consistently. Just being in the SEC, they're just more readily available. And I just don't see a weakness in their team, honestly. You guys agree with that for the most part? Yeah, I, w- I would say that that's very true. And I mean, I was just looking back at Matt and I's predictions for the college football playoff before the college football season even started. And we both had Alabama at the top. I think I had, Ge- I think Matt had Georgia at two and I had Georgia at three or something like that. And like, I mean, seriously, two games into the season, we were both saying, okay, Georgia's going to win the, the, the championship. Like we, we knew right off the bat after just, you know, minimal playing time that they would actually be the favorite to win the championship and they still are heavily favored. But I think that one thing that I would say about this playoff formation is the fact, and a lot of people are kind of arguing, okay, well, Ohio State overall is probably a better team than TCU and should be ranked three, but that's not how the play the committee does it. The committee goes by have, if you win your games and if you make it through your conference championship, that's what they value the most. And I know we've said it a lot on this podcast, but I'm I want this to be like the final explanation of why because I've had a lot of my friends say, oh, well, Ohio State should be in over or Ohio State should be number three over TCU. TCU should be number four. It's like. Well, no, not really, because TCU got actually got to their conference championship. They lost in essentially the biggest game of the season for them. Ohio State, yes, Michigan is their biggest game of the season, but it's not their conference championship. Their conference championship would have been less less work to, to win for Ohio State, but they didn't even make it there in the first place. So that's why Ohio State is four and TCU is three. And I must say that I th- and I think I said this. Well, I said this about USC in our last episode when we were talking about all the scenarios of, of who would get in, whether, you know, USC won or lost or TCU won or lost. And I said that if USC got in at the four spot, which they were placed at the four spot in last week's rankings before these conference championships went down, I said that USC had the best chance of taking down a team like Georgia because they just have so much firepower on offense and so much potential. I think that Ohio state is, is similar or more similar to, USC than any of the other teams in the college in the college football playoff regarding can they beat Georgia because I think that the the firepower that Ohio State has on offense is the only amount of firepower that in this playoff that could actually have a chance of maybe beating Georgia over the top you know on a a few plays and getting a, a couple lucky long touchdowns I think that Michigan and TCU are either one if they I mean if if Michigan or TCU moves on to to the championship, they're going to get absolutely blown out by Georgia. But then again, this first playoff game where Ohio State might have a chance of beating Georgia is getting played in Atlanta. And so it's essentially a home game for Georgia. And you're going to have so many Georgia Bulldogs fans there. And it's just, yeah, it's 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 kind of lucky for them. But also at the same time, like you can't really make that argument because I think if even if they were playing on a neutral field, even if they were playing in, in in Columbus, I think that they would probably still blow out Ohio State. And uh, we actually just got news today that Jackson Smith and Jigba is actually sitting out of the college football playoff game, which is pretty interesting because you usually hear guys sitting out of bowl games because they don't matter because, right, like who, who cares about a bowl game? The only bowl game that really matters is like the Hawaii Bowl where the winners get like Xboxes or whatever. But otherwise, you don't really care about a bowl game. And yeah, but but most guys will actually play in the playoff and they say like, okay, well, if we don't make it to the playoff, then I'll sit out. But if we do make it to the playoff, then I'll play. But Jackson Smith and Jigba was like, nah, I'm not going to play. But he hasn't. He basically hasn't played this whole season. I think he's been hurt, and he, he played like a couple, a few snaps, like 20-something percent of the snaps against Penn State or something like that in Ohio State's game against Penn State. And I think he sat out for basically every other game. 
and he's not coming back for the for the game against Georgia, which I think he would be healthy for. He's just sitting out because he doesn't want something that happened to him, like ha- like what happened to Jamison Williams last playoff. Um, Jamison Williams tore his ACL in the game against Georgia in last year's playoff. So I guess I can kind of understand where he's coming from. But yeah, I mean, I think that Ohio State not having, not having Jack- Jackson Smith and Jigba on their offense is like, it- it's a huge hit and it takes away a lot of that potential from that offense so yeah I mean I, I agree that George is just gonna take this thing yeah I mean let's talk about the longest lasting hamstring injury in the history of the world here yeah. Jackson Smith and Jigba in, like pulled his hamstring in like the second week of the season and he's been sitting out ever since so it's not even really like he's sitting out of the bowl game because he's doing the whole oh I'm going to sit out because I don't want to get hurt because I want to go to the NFL well he t- I guess maybe whatever but I think either he is a lot more hurt than people are letting on or Ohio state is getting out there, or he quite literally just doesn't care as much about the college season and wants to be drafted high and not get injured and be fully ready for that, which again, you got to do what you got to do. And you know, if he's going to cost himself $5 million, if he doesn't, if he gets hurt or if he, you know, doesn't play or whatever, like that's, that's a big deal. So, you know, he, he should be able to do whatever he wants. Um, it's just weird that, you know, he, he, there wasn't a serious injury listed. It was just like, he pulled his hamstring and he's been out for, you know, three months now. So anyway, I, I agree with, with obviously what Mitchell and Hayden were saying that, you know, it, it, it Ohio state is going to be a good matchup for Georgia, but the tough part is right. Which is just so good. And so I think, you know, Mitchell obviously nailed it on the head there with being like it, it, just in the in the games that you've watched and the games that you've seen, and we even saw it this past weekend, they go up so big in the first half of these games, and then they kind of just don't really give a crap for the rest of them, which you can't blame them for because they're playing back. It's like, it's like what Bama used to do, where it's like, you know, you, you get a 45 nothing at halftime, play your backups, and then your backups, by the time they become starters the next year, they're already, they've already played so much that they're, you know, they're kind of ready to step in there. So, you know, the fact that the SEC championship at, you know, this final score ended up being 50 to 30. Like that's a very high scoring game. You think, wow, Georgia let up so many points. No, it was 35 to seven at halftime. This game was never close. So, you know, you can kind of miss me with all that, but, but I do think that, yeah, Georgia's definitely the most, the most overwhelming team. However, there's also a lot of controversy talking about a team that's also from the SEC and also usually makes the college football playoff. And that's the Alabama Crimson Tide. I don't want to hear it. Okay. I don't want to hear it. They don't deserve to be in. They don't deserve to be in, and and I get it. The, the talent on the team is amazing. You have Bryce Young, who's probably going to be gone after this year and never get a chance to win a college football playoff championship. All the stuff that Nick Saban – I don't know if you guys saw, but Nick Saban's like going on a tear, creating all these reasons as to why Alabama should be in over right. other teams and why they're so much better and all this stuff. Okay, hey, buddy, I get it. Your team is pretty good, and that's fine. But you didn't win the games on your schedule. You know who did win the games on their schedule? Georgia. Who are the two teams that 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 Alabama lost to? It's Tennessee and it's LSU. Georgia beat Tennessee, I think, 26 to 10. But that game was, ne- again, never close. They had absolutely dominated the game. And they beat LSU 30 to 20. So they averaged, they, they beat the teams that Alabama lost to by an average of 20 points each time. Alabama could have done that, but they didn't. So I'm sorry. And so realistically, what we're going up here is, your argument for Alabama being in over Ohio State and or TCU in both cases, right? Ohio State and TCU both have more wins and won more games in the regular season than Alabama did. None of these three teams are conference champions. TCU made it to their conference championship. Alabama and Ohio State didn't even qualify to get into their conference championship. So once again, 
they don't have any good wins. There's nothing on this schedule that leads me to believe that they're all of a sudden such a better team when they couldn't win the games in the regular season that they were supposed to. Anyway, you look at their schedule. Okay, well, who's the who's Alabama's best win? It's Texas. Okay, yeah, Texas is pretty good. No, Texas is eight and four, and they're ranked number twenty in the college football playoffs simply because they. I think I I swear they ranked Texas number twenty just so that they could say that Alabama has a top twenty win in the college football playoff. All right, I think that's probably it. And then you think, okay, well, Texas, yeah, Texas is pretty good. Okay, but guess who else beat Texas? TCU beat Texas. TCU beat Texas in Austin against Texas's starting quarterback in which in a game in which Alabama beat Texas. I think in I think it was also in Austin, but they beat him by one point on a last second field goal, and they had and Texas had their backup quarterback back in all game. So you want to talk like comparisons? They literally played the same team. Alabama barely beat a backup quarterback for Texas. TCU went into Texas, dominated the crap out of them, seventeen to ten, and they won against their starting quarterback. I, I don't know what else you want from me, right? So the thing is, like, yes, and so and so, what everybody goes to then at the end of this is and Nick Saban even mentioned this. He said. Okay, let's la- let's ask the odd make odds makers. Who would be favored in a game between Alabama and TCU? Okay, and the overwhelming fact I even will admit Alabama would be favored in that game if they match up against each other because it's just you're just comparing talent. Alabama has so much more talent. Okay, but you can't be like if we made the college football. This is gonna be my last point. If the college football playoff, the teams that made the college football playoff were determined by point spreads. Or, or predicted rankings based on your talent level and your recruiting rankings, we wouldn't play the season. There's no reason to even play a regular season game. Why don't, why don't we just line up in August and decide the four teams that make the college football playoff just because they'll always be favored in all the games they play. And then we'll go ahead and play the regular season, but it won't actually matter because we already know the teams that are getting in there. That's, that's not even fair. That's not fair. And to a better point for this past season, guess who was ranked in the top four to start the season? That would be one Texas A&M. And guess where they ended up? At 4-10 and 10 overall and 1-8 and eight in the SEC. So there's a perfect example as to your preseason ranking might not mean anything. TCU was not even close to being ranked. TCU was supposed to come in 7th out of 10 teams in the Big 12. And here they are with an undefeated regular season and losing in overtime in their conference championship. Okay, so the regular season matters so much because it's based on how you perform, how your team comes together. And, and anytime, if you've ever played football, like you know that it's the ultimate team game and that's for a reason. So the fact that Alabama didn't win those regular season games matters a lot. And the fact that we're not going to base a college football playoff entry on just a point spread in a neutral site game that nobody would really ever want to see in real life, then sure, Alabama, yeah, you'll be favored over TCU, but you don't deserve to be in the college football playoff because you didn't win those games. TCU has a higher strength of record. They beat the teams that Alabama beat even better and with better players. So that's my argument against Alabama. I think I made up a couple, a few good points. And it's one of those things too, where it's like, if you believe that Alabama should be in, then you're never going to be convinced. Otherwise you're just going to keep saying that they should. And so fine. It's, you know, it is what it is. And if that's the case, then yes, you're going to say, Matt, well, why wouldn't you argue the same thing for Ohio state and USC? In which case USC lost their conference championship. Ohio state didn't, didn't even play in theirs and Ohio state jumped USC. Again, it's about the body of work, but you have to watch these teams' games. And as much as Hayden was correct in saying that USC's offense is lighting teams up and is scoring a ton of points and everything is going on like that. So the other thing is, well, Caleb Williams got hurt in like the on the first drive, I think, of the U, the Utah game. And after that, the USC was cooked. So he was their entire team to begin with. 
they wouldn't be even competing even if they made it in the college football playoff as like a you know four seed or whatever if they had you know even if they had beaten utah they wouldn't have been competitive against georgia with caleb williams yeah you would but the other thing is like USC lost to Utah twice. Like you can't lose the same team twice. You have to prove that you're better than and and win in their conference championship. They didn't do that. And I so I think that overall the body of work and the talent of Ohio State is better. And the fact that USC is so flawed on defense, you you can't. And the fact that you keep losing to the same team, I think that allows Ohio State a better argument. And two, because Ohio State basically has the best loss in the entire country. Right? They lost at home to Michigan, who was the only other undefeated team besides Georgia and, and is number two in the ranking. So it's like it, the body of work that Ohio State has presented, I think, is better than USC and USC lost to the same team twice. And all that. So I think that in that case, yes, because I've watched all the games and I've watched the teams play and I think Ohio State is better than USC. And do I think that Alabama is better than TCU? Maybe, but maybe not, because I don't know, because they lost those regular season games. And, and just because there's a point spread somewhere out there doesn't mean that obviously, uh, you know, this should be in because otherwise, right, like I said, we would just decide the four teams in August before the season started and there's no point in playing the regular season. And that's the overall point I think that I want to make really is that the regular season in college football is the best thing ever because it's so short and because every game means so much that you don't want to be throwing it away. And so I think that's kind of the, that's, that, that's how I feel at least, but you know, Alabama fans are always going to feel different. So Hayden, what do you got? Yeah. One of Nick Saban's arguments, actually, I saw this as like a bleacher report notification that I got, I think it was yesterday. And I think the title of it said something like Saban claps back at college football playoff committee uh, saying that asking who's better in the moment. And it's like, Dude, you didn't even play last weekend. Like, what are you saying? Who's better in the moment for when TCU was playing in their conference championship and you didn't even play at all in last weekend? Like, that makes absolutely no sense. So, yeah, I mean, the whole the whole argument about the odds thing, like, yeah, like Matt said, I get it. Yes, I would say if you were to put Alabama up against TCU, I would also say that Alabama would probably win that game at a neutral site. But, right, like Matt said, we never really know because TCU was beaten – teams that Alabama has beaten by more points than Alabama did. So it's, it's just kind of a, it's just kind of up in the air, but, uh, but yeah, there's the college football playoff committee is going by, by logistical things that, that makes sense, right? Like they're going by logic. They're not going by, Oh, well, I like this team more and this team has a better chance of beating this team. It's like, well, who has the better record TCU has a better record. So yes, that's that's probably going to wrap up this college football playoff segment, unless Mitchell has anything else. Mitchell, do you have anything else? All right, we can move into World Cup now. So let's talk about the biggest stories coming out of the group stages. South Korea, Japan, and Morocco are all way better than anybody expected. This topic is actually did not age very well because Japan and South Korea both lost today in the round of 16, but Meanwhile, teams like Belgium and Germany couldn't even make it out of their group. So, I mean, let's be honest, South Korea and Japan are, are better than those teams. The favorites are rolling, though, as Brazil, France and England have dominated. And after we get through some general discussion, let's make some predictions for the rest of the tournament's results. So I'm going to actually hand it over to, to uh, Mitchell here to talk about some some general things that he's noticed from the World Cup because he knows better than us. I appreciate the uh, the clout you're giving me here with the soccer, but. <laughs> Yeah, like you mentioned before, the Japan and South Korea did not age very well from this morning when you were thinking about talking about them. But honestly, both teams look, both teams looked pretty good, like in their games as best they could. Japan lost on penalties to uh, Croatia, and honestly, if you know anything about penalties, it shouldn't be that hard 
from 12 yards away to beat a goalie one-on-one just with a shot. But Japan couldn't do it. Their penalties were awful. They got three of their four attempted saved, and they were not – They none of them looked convincing, like, penalties-wise. And as far as uh, South Korea, they, they just got worked. They were not the better team. Brazil is – truly a juggernaut this year there's not a weakness in their team and south korea they're not a one-man show by any means but uh huangman's son their main player i've mentioned him a bunch on the last time i was on this podcast as he plays in the premier league but he is world class arguably one of the best wingers in the world but it's not a one-man show and he couldn't quite bag one against brazil so could would have had to bag five as well because like i said brazil is a juggernaut but on belgium and germany so germany are a lot of their players are in their prime. Um, they've had consistent youth development over the last couple of years, and they always should be good because they're one of the best countries in the world as far as soccer historically. And like I said, their youth development is renowned to be consistent. They'll always have good players at every position. I don't know what went wrong this year for them. They just didn't look super urgent on the ball. They, they looked like they had control over most of their games, but just could not put the ball in the back of the net for some reason. And then Belgium were... I really thought they were going to go super far. I think they have some of the best players in the world, but that's the thing with the World Cup. You only have this year more than any other in the past. They had less time to prepare with their national teams as ever before. So despite the fact that Belgium has some of the best players in the world, including uh, Kevin De Bruyne, who I think is probably the best player in the world, and Thibaut Courtois, their goalie, is the best goalie in the world, they both played terribly. Kevin De Bruyne was lazy. He was yelling at his teammates, not being a good leader which is probably new for him on Belgium. And then Courtois led in some absolute howlers. He was not playing well between the sticks. And I really think it came down to those two not being leaders. But a lot of these other teams, as we expected, Brazil, France, Argentina, England, look really good. And I look forward to hearing you guys' predictions on them. So uh, you mentioned something really interesting there. And I think that that's, that was a really big theme coming into the World Cup was the fact that the time that this World Cup is played, and we mentioned this a little bit when we could kind of did the preview-ish type of thing, Usually it's played in the summer and during the summer, obviously you don't, I don't know the exact schedule of the EPL and everything, but I know that it starts around the fall time and it kind of goes through the spring and kind of their summer is, is when the time is off. And so they have time to be away from their, well, their kind of regular clubs that they play with uh, and then kind of obviously join together with their, with their, you know, their countrymen uh, for, for their, for their, you know, world teams and and clubs uh and so i think but obviously right this this world cup is in the middle of the fall and so it almost split it well it actually did completely split the at least the epl season after like a quarter of their games were played they had to basically just play a month of the world cup and, and similar for i mean not pretty much every other club you know soccer league and within, within within europe and so i guess kind of mitchell if you if you can if you've had any thoughts on it or whatever Go over how that can impact. There were even guys, I think, the World Cup, I think, started on, what, a uh, Sunday or a Monday or something. And there were guys who had legitimately played their last club league game on, like, the Thursday before, flew to Qatar, and then, like, two days later have to be playing with their World Cup team, who they have not played with in, you know, months or years quite even. Uh, and, And then, obviously, right, you're playing for the next month, and you have to really get everything together. And then also, so kind of that's kind of the first part of my question. Second part is the weather and the surfaces, I would say. So obviously the weather is extremely hot. They're inside in kind of quote unquote air conditioned arenas, but I think some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, and, and so obviously you have a lot hotter, like strictly speaking, um, 
a lot of these environments are extremely hot, something that they're not really used to playing in, in terms of just, you know, how much your cardio is going when you're playing soccer and then how much sweat you're losing and all that, and how much more tired you, you really can be as well. And I think the services, I, I didn't hear too much about this, but I, I think like it's grass, but they can't really grow much grass there naturally. And so it's kind of like some artificial stuff too. So talk about first, I guess, kind of the, how teams were impacted by splitting up the season with their club teams when they're regular kind of, you know, day-to-day uh, teams that they play on as well as kind of the weather and the glass services they're playing on and how maybe that would advantage teams like Japan, like South Korea, who, you know, are kind of in other parts of the world playing at different times, stuff like that. Yeah. So the middle of the season thing is absolutely a huge aspect for every single, I would say major country and less for the smaller countries, just because the smaller countries have fewer players that are playing in the uh, quote unquote top five leagues of Europe which are, like I said, mid-season. And the surfaces thing, I mean, everybody's playing on the same thing. It's kind of the argument you can always make with that. But it definitely does benefit the, the, the smaller countries, per se, or the less powerhouse countries, because these major players in these major countries are used to playing on pristine grass every time, perfectly watered, conditioned wonderfully for their games. And I'm sure these pitches emulate that as best they can. But I'm sure that the way their cleats react with it is completely different. They're turning around and playing completely different styles, completely different ways that they're used to week in, week out. And I mentioned Kevin De Bruyne earlier for Manchester City, his club, he's allowed to play very advanced, more of on a tactical sense. He's allowed to play very advanced and kind of float a little bit more. Whereas for Belgium, they play a three at the back versus a four at the back, like at City. Um, so in that three at the back, he has to do a lot more running. And I'm sure that the conditions aren't optimal in these Qatari stadiums that were put together and um, like their air conditioning thing that they were advertising. I'm not 100% sure on how well it works, but I know that he's running a lot more in these tournaments. And once again, back to the midseason, he was a week ago training on a com- in a completely different country, completely different climate. So even if the conditions aren't harsher, it's just different. And that does take time. And they didn't have any time to prepare for that. And even down to the ball, like the way the patches on a soccer ball work, not often does it really impact the way it flies, but Sometimes, like in the 2010 World Cup, uh, if you hit that ball, it would f- like float almost because it's just the way the patchwork and the aerodynamics was. This World Cup ball, none of them have practiced with, and that's a big thing. Like if they're playing in a Champions League game midweek, they'll use a Champions League ball because it flies that little bit differently. And I think that might have impacted Courtois because the Belgian keeper, because multiple times did a, a knuckleball, which has no spin and it can fly a lot. Multiple times did a shot like that come at him or one skipped off the ground and he just looked completely frazzled. So it's just the time adjustment thing was absolutely had an impact on Belgium noticeably more than most, but I guess they just didn't adjust as well. Yeah. Mitchell, it's interesting. You talk about the, the patches on the ball, because I actually like, there's been a couple of shots this world cup and I don't watch much soccer at all. So this may just be like kind of normal, but there's been some shots this world cup where I'm just like, how did they think that that was even going to like be on target at all? Like there's, there's been some shots where it's just been like skyrocketed over the net or not, not even like over the net, but like some guy will, maybe it's just a miss kick and that, that may happen often. But like, uh, I think, I think it was yesterday I was watching a game and I, I can't remember who it was, but like there was a guy that took a shot from like right outside the box and he, he kind of, he had pretty good control of it, but it literally like, it didn't even go over like the baseline of, of like the goal line or whatever it went out of bounds to the right and it was just like like it went out of frame and it just didn't even come down i was like dude how is that even supposed to be a shot but that that may be affected by the patches i don't know but one team that i did want to talk about was is france and like i'm you know i'm i'm kind of biased with france if you guys don't know i uh 
I take French in college. I'm actually a double major. That's oh, they, my major. Hayden, they know because every time you start the podcast, you're talking yeah. about some anecdotal story that takes 18 minutes to explain about your French class and what you're doing and how many papers you have to write. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I do have a couple of French papers right now. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I do want to talk about France. And this is actually kind of one thing that Mitchell wrote down here and, and talking about Kylian Mbappe and how absolutely dominant he is. Um, in case you're wondering, it's it's basically like, Per game, Mbappe is minus 150 odds to score a goal, which is just absolutely insane. Every other player, it's at least plus odds. I would say it's probably at least plus 150 for, like, basically every other player, um, including, you know, like the Ronaldos, the Messis of the world. I mean, basically everybody else. All Even all those really, really good scorers um, that you probably would consider to be better players overall than a guy like Mbappe. Mbappe is just... I, th- I think I, I don't know if it's just this World Cup that's that's kind of like tailoring to his talents and his um, and, and his specialties. But like he's just faster than everybody else on, on the pitch. And he's what you I mean, I, I know this. This is actually something that I've kind of learned as as I've watched the World Cup and as I've been reading. But it's like he's like the definition of a selfish player, like a selfish striker who basically just if he gets the ball, it's like a 50 percent chance that he's going to take a shot. And he's he, like he's he's not really looking to to pass the ball much. I don't think, I mean, whenever I've watched him, he's, yeah, he's basically just, he gets the ball and he's going to try to dribble past the defender. Or if he gets the ball like in the box and they're trying to work some kind of um, some kind of like offensive attack, that's, that's kind of planned out. If he gets the ball, even on the side of the goal, like he's going to try to fake somebody out and and dribble to the middle to get a shot off. It worked against Poland yesterday, like really well. I mean, yeah, I think he had, well, he had two goals and I think both of the, both of his shots were basically just like, him dribbling for a little bit and then firing a shot um, that was, that would be like right over a Poland player's foot. And then the goalie would have, you know, would kind of have a hard time judging where it was going to go, if it was going to get blocked or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, Mbappe's I would say is probably the most dangerous player in the world cup right now. I don't know what you guys think about that. You guys can maybe, maybe have a little bit of a different take. Yeah. Mbappe is most definitely the leader for uh, in odds for the golden boot, which is just top goal scorer. And, the way that the World Cup is played often, just every year, because these teams aren't as tactically sound, they can't just play their style week in, week out. There's a lot of space in behind a lot of the center backs, which essentially just means a fast forward like Mbappe just has acres of space to run in behind and do his work. But like Hayden was saying, Mbappe is an incredible finisher like of the ball. He can always put it on frame, and that's all you can really ask for out of a striker. But not only does he do that, he puts it to the corner. And the way he does this is – his touch setting up his shot is pretty much second to none except for other world-class players like maybe Messi. But the way he sets up the ball to shoot works so well because if you even give him an ounce of space, like a tiny bit of space, no matter how good you are, how long your legs are, if he gets that ball out his feet, his stride is long, he'll open up and crack it on goal. And that's exactly the type of player that if they do pack it in and don't allow him space in behind, he'll just punish you that way by – having a great touch, opening up a little bit of an angle and ripping it on target. And I really don't think any player in the world does that as well as him. So he's definitely the most dangerous player as far as offensively at this tournament. And the craziest part is he's my age. I think he's maybe even younger than me. What is he, 23 or something? I just turned 24. Um, So yeah, this guy is, and he became famous or like kind of got his, you know, big spark was actually in the last world cup. I mean, obviously we know France won the world cup in 2018, but like he played in that world cup as I think an 18 year old and scored a bunch of goals and everybody's like, wow, this guy's really good. And then I've seen the four years since then he's become one of the best players in the world. 
So a team that's moving on uh, that we haven't talked about too much yet is Portugal. Uh, And obviously, you know, they've kind of always been in the mix, right? Um, But there's been a ton of controversy over the best player, Cristiano Ronaldo. It started with Manchester United in which I think it was, and again, Mitchell's probably going to have to go into a little bit about this, but the way that he plays, the way he wants to play versus what his coaches think he should be doing, it's kind of just he's he's being a little bit a little bit selfish, I think is probably the, the summary, but definitely want to hear a little bit more about the details of that. And now it's moved into the World Cup in terms of what to the point where some people are arguing that his teams are might be even better off uh, with him not playing uh, in, in, you know, obviously in these games. So really, the question is, like, kind of what happened here? Why is why is there so much controversy over Cristiano Ronaldo? What did he do? You know, who's he? making mad why is he kind of being a bad teammate what's what's the what's the story here and then kind of where does this lead so what is the future of Cristiano Ronaldo obviously we'll kind of talk about within the tournament of you know obviously the rest of the world cup but then also there's been rumors about him leaving to go to uh uh um uh league in the middle east and, and playing for them and for a ton of money and stuff so um I guess kind of again another two-parter to Mitchell I'm making him work a little bit here um what was the kind of the reason behind all the all the controversy boiling up over Cristiano Ronaldo which I think you know stemmed from the kind of the Manchester United stuff uh, and then obviously kind of what's what's his future like after the World Cup if he has to live out his contract with Man U for the rest of the EPL season and then kind of where does it go after that yeah so basically the the root of the problem at Manchester United was when he came in it wasn't the manager that there is there now and Ronaldo plays a certain style he kind of camps up front. He's incredible at it. He scores a lot of goals. At 36, he was second in the Premier League scoring. So can't argue with that. But they brought in this new manager, Eric Ten Hag. And his philosophy is uh, it's about pressing. So forwards don't just camp up front. They press. They press on a defender's first touch almost every time. And Ronaldo doesn't really like playing that style because the way he scores goals is while his teammates do that, he floats in and around space, finds it, and scores a lot, obviously. So he's obviously a super arrogant guy, always has been, but he backs it up with goals and results consistently, trophies. So that's kind of where the root came from. He hasn't been doing that because a little old and he doesn't have world-class players around him as much, but he's not really loving the current manager at United. So he's had an attitude and outwardly so because he has more followers on Instagram than any other being on earth. So he's got more draw than most, but he's kind of brought that into the World Cup for some reason because this coach for Portugal, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but he also likes a very cohesive pressing style where if the other team has the ball, you're not just waiting for them to make a mistake or you're not just letting them bring it into your third and try to attack your defenders. Their, their coach wants the forwards and obviously the midfielders, but even the forwards track back, put a little pressure on and Ronaldo is not loving that. So I also think Portugal having so much depth, which they haven't had in many, many years, they have a lot of good players that could really, really come in for Ronaldo and make as much of an impact. But on the uh, the transfer thing outside the World Cup, so I'm sure you guys have talked, I've actually heard you guys talk about sports washing before on the podcast, and basically that's all is going on here. So this Saudi Arabian club, I want to say it's all Nasser, if I'm saying that right, uh, forgive me if I'm not, but a Saudi Arabian club is looking to buy out his contract so he wouldn't have to stay in the entire thing because there's a buyout clause. They would have to take on his wages, but obviously if they have enough money to buy him, they have enough money to pay him his wages. And obviously, as far as I'm concerned, Ronaldo is the second best soccer player to ever do it in my lifetime, at least. But I think he even passed that. And his arrogance is kind of part of his persona. Like he's always backed it up, kind of like Jordan. He's very similar in that sense. Like he talks smack, but he goes out and wins trophy after trophy, scores goal after goal. So Al Nasser bidding for him, I think is more of a publicity thing. I don't think he'll go there. 
but you never know. He's getting old. He's 36, pushing 37 even, um, if I have that right. And got four kids. He's probably exhausted. He's been playing on the world stage since he was about 17, 18. And that's a lot of soccer along your leg. Obviously, he's a physical specimen, but mentally, it honestly could be getting to him. And we could be seeing that kind of seep through the cracks a little bit. And I don't think enough people have given him credit for staying as composed as he has on the world stage. And just now, is he out, like, speaking out a little bit against his coaches? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I agree. And kind of that's why I want to talk about it, because it, it was kind of up there in the news, obviously, with the Portugal stuff. And, and, and I think you're right. It, it's interesting that you say that. And it kind of makes sense now in my mind. They do have a lot of depth. They have a lot of good players. And and so that's kind of been my thing is I hear all this Cristiano Ronaldo stuff. And I'm thinking and I'm like looking at Portugal's games. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, they, they probably won't make it out of the group. And then it's like they crushed it, you know, and they are playing really well. So I'm thinking that it's, it's interesting. It, would be hilarious, obviously, if all this, you know, drama goes on. And, and as Mitchell was saying, you know, his arrogancy continues and, but he just keeps scoring goals and Portugal keeps winning games. Clearly something's working, right? So, uh, so we'll have to see how that goes in terms of seeing how things go. That's how we're going to wrap up this segment here talking about really what our predictions are for the rest of the tournament. So I guess I don't really know how we want to kind of divide this up, but maybe each of us give a champion or a final that we think will happen or, or some, you know, maybe even a team that could, that could surprise here. Um, Mitchell, go ahead. Or what, sorry. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I got it. So basically um, Spain plays Morocco tomorrow as does Portugal playing Switzerland. And that would complete the round of 16 and it gets us to our final eight. So before we get into the predictions total, I'd just like to say that Spain is probably going to handle Morocco, but Morocco has been playing well and we're not sure. And Portugal, I think, if they can go out tomorrow with or without Ronaldo, uh, the, the coach has talked about even dropping Ronaldo as the captain and not giving him the captaincy, which is pretty interesting. But I think if I think Spain will handle their business as a, as needed. But if Portugal goes out and wins tomorrow, no matter the circumstances, I think they could be very dangerous going forward. But otherwise, the last eight would look like Netherlands playing Argentina, Brazil playing Croatia. And on the other side of the bracket, France plays England. And then the winner of the two games tomorrow play each other. And I think out of those teams, if we're just doing winner runner up, I'd say my heart wants to say Argentina because I'm a huge Messi fan. Always will be, always have. But they would have to beat the Netherlands, who look pretty good. And I think that they're going to struggle tomorrow. They have faced each other in a couple World Cups. And then after that, they'd have to play the winner of Croatia, Brazil. And Croatia, I don't know how they always do it in World Cups. They're just they're They always do. Uh, I'm not sh- I don't think they knocked out Argentina last time, but they very well could have. They went to the final last World Cup and played their hearts out, didn't quite win against France. But I just don't see Argentina or Netherlands beating either of them. And I think Brazil, like I said earlier, have zero weaknesses. Even their midfield of players that I don't think are the most talented in their positions, they all just gel so well together. Maybe it's a cultural thing for the Brazilians. Maybe it's just their their coaching, even their tactics. But it's hard to argue with them. So I say Brazil on that side. And on the other side, France looks amazing with Mbappe. But I think that England have a very good chance to win it. Um, their like standout player has been, uh, I think, Jude Bellingham, one of their midfielders. And I think he's going to match up very well against France tomorrow because – or not tomorrow, pardon me, on uh, December 10th because the way he plays is he's so dynamic on and off the ball. And the French midfield – I would say they're less dynamic, but they're very imbalanced. Um, a lot of the, the like graphics you'll see of the statistics after the fact, they show the effective positioning of all of the France players, and their midfield is spread out all over the place. And I think Jude Bellingham's going to have a field day with that. So 
I think the final is going to be Brazil, Germany, or sorry, Brazil, England. And I really have no idea who's going to win. I want to say England just because I'm a huge Premier League fan, but I just don't see anybody beating Brazil this time. And as far as top goal scorer, it's normally on one of the two teams in the finals just because they play the most games. But Mbappe, if he puts one or two past England, he's got the next goal scorer by two already. So I think he could even wrap up the golden boot against England and they lose. That being said, if you're going to bet on anything in this World Cup from now on, it should be Brazil to win and Mbappe golden boot. That's a very good analysis by Mitchell there. I think that I'm basically saying the same thing here. I would also love to see Messi win a World Cup because he hasn't yet. And this is going to be his last World Cup or his last international tournament, I think, for that matter. So I would love to see Argentina win. But like Mitchell said, Netherlands is a really good opponent. And then if they even if they even if Argentina wins that game, they're probably going to have to win against Brazil in the final four stage. So um, so that's yeah, that's probably not going to be too fun there. But uh, but I, I do think that Brazil is going to get through to the final as well. And then I was also going to say England is going to make it to the, like England. England is just very, very good at scoring. I mean, we have France, too, where um, where Mbappe obviously scores a lot of goals and is, is a is like we said, the most dangerous player right now in the World Cup. But I think through the first four games or something like that, England England had like nine goals through the first four games, which I think was the most across the World Cup. I'm not quite sure of that. Actually, it probably wasn't because because uh, Spain had seven against Costa Rica in the in their game against them in the group stage. But I think that in terms of like consistency, I think England has had three games where they've scored three or more goals or something like that. So yeah, so that's definitely something to look at there and and say okay, well they've they've got a really balanced team that can that can score and obviously we know that if you score then you're more more likely to win the game. So um but yeah, that that matchup between France and England will probably be the best of the group stages I mean of the quarterfinals I would say. So definitely watch that one on on the 10th. And then um yeah, I mean I feel bad not really talking about Spain or Portugal much in that bottom right part of the bracket. Because they, I mean, they, they do play tomorrow and like assuming both of those teams win the the favorite teams in those games, I don't really think that either of those teams really have a chance. I think that Ronaldo struggles on with Portugal and kind of his disagreements with the manager or the coach. I think that it's probably um, it's probably done for Portugal anytime before or at the quarterfinals. So, yeah, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Brazil and England in my final. And I actually, yeah, I'll, I'll probably pick Brazil to win just because they're they're so dominant. So. Yeah, I, I I heard I mean kind of reading up before it, you know, trying to get some betting angles. Obviously, Mitchell gave us some gold right there to uh, to end his segment there. Brazil's substitutions, like if they played their second team, they would be just as good as kind of your middling World Cup team, which is absolutely ridiculous. So, and as Mitchell said, it's not even like they have incredibly talented players. They just all play so well together, which is a you know kudos to how well they're coached and and how well they do play together all the time. Um, so I I, I kind of will kind of pencil them into, I guess, my final game. Um, but I, I agree really with Hayden and, and Mitchell, everything they said about this England and France game, really whoever wins that game kind of has not like their ticket punch, but I probably will, will have, be heavily flavored to at least reach the final um, either, you know, against Brazil, Argentina, you know, kind of whoever comes from the other side. Um, and, and it's true. England has scored the most goals in the world cup so far. And, and obviously, you know, France is kind of right behind them. And so I think it's just going to depend on really who's able to kind of get more offensive chances in this game. And I think France will probably take it because I don't know. I mean, they look dominantly, obviously, you know, today was against South Korea, so it's not, or no, sorry, they played, they played, um, they played Poland 
a couple days ago, but I don't know. I mean, they won it last time they came into this year and people were like, eh, I don't think they're going to do it. Cause you know, their players are kind of getting older and whatever. And they just, they dominated. I mean, they, they won the first two games of their group stage. And so they didn't even need to, I think they played Tunisia in their last game and they lost to Tunisia, but it didn't matter because they'd already beaten. They already had wins. They only got three point wins against the teams that they had played previously. So it's like, they just rested their starters and they're kind of chilling. Then they come into the Poland game. They went three, nothing or three, one. And the, Poland scored their one goal in like the 90th minute. So um, I, I like France to move on. I think it's probably going to be Brazil and France for the final game. And I'm only going to pick Brazil in that matchup. I mean, obviously I think they're probably the better team, but I also don't want France to repeat because that would be kind of boring. I think as a result, especially when you have, you know, kind of the, the, the legendary South American teams like Brazil and Argentina that are on kind of the, that, you know, that one side of the bracket there um, that are fighting to kind of, you know, bring the world cup back to uh, back to the Americas. So I guess we're all, predicting brazil to, at the end of this but uh but it'll be really interesting to see what happens and obviously we'll kind of catch up as we go here maybe even have mitchell on to preview the last game or something like that i think that'd be really cool but uh you know i think that was that was a great world cup segment i will say that you know for all that we went through and, and obviously you know mitchell providing his uh his his amazing soccer knowledge as always thanks for having me as per as per usual to talk about soccer is one thing i'll never pass up the opportunity to do and one last thing is uh, i've mentioned it before in the podcast a big thing that i'm into like i was saying earlier just like more advanced stats kind of stuff like that with soccer is expected goals I've mentioned before is just essentially how often a, a team should score by the positions they've gotten in and the likelihood that they'll score from X position. So expected goals, XG. England only has 6.4 XG, but has 12 goals. They also have the most clean sheets. And that's really scary, I think, for other teams because that means they've been outperforming their XG. So even though they haven't had the most chances and top of the xg charts is germany ironically who have 11 xg almost and only scored six then brazil and france and then argentina but england is pretty far behind them and still are outscoring these other teams i think there's just not really anything that france can do if they're totally gridlocked in 90 minutes or 120 minutes for just extra time in open play i think england's defense is just so strong um they've gotten three clean sheets thus far the uh, world cup and Really, I just think on set pieces, they can score on a fluke one. They have a lot of tall players who can jump pretty high. And I don't know, England could scare us here. But Brazil, like I was saying, they just they have it all. And uh, want, like they, they have pretty high XG, but they've also been scoring their XG as they should. Obviously, they have seven goals to nine XG, which isn't bad. But I should, I'd be worried if I was playing either of those teams. So I really hope it's a good final between them if we, if we predicted that right. Also, one last betting thing. Um, if you're not a messy fanboy and you are willing to bet against them, Cody Gakpo on Netherlands, he will likely score. He is incredible. I don't know how he scores as often as he does. He's not the most skilled or physically imposing, but he just scores goals. So if you want to make a little bit, maybe if you want to sprinkle something on that, Cody Gakpo to score against Argentina. Definitely with some value there. But otherwise, thanks for thanks for having me, guys. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming on, Mitchell. It's always it's always a pleasure having you on the podcast. You always give so many so many good takes and there's some betting advice for you too, Matt, you got, got You got a little bit of a rival here on the podcast talking about, about some soccer betting. Hey, any, anything that Mitchell says is like pure gold. Cause he basically called all the EPL futures that we had on last time when he was here and all the betting advice I've given out. It's, it's actually ridiculous how much, like when I say the bets on here, they lose. And then I'm like, dang it. I forgot to mention them on the podcast. Cause it will do like Thursday podcast. And I forget to mention what my bets are. And those always win. So yeah. as, as we're going so far, I could do this podcast for two more years and I wouldn't have a good, as good of a record as Mitchell does in like two episodes. So, you know, he's already been there. Let's go. All right. Well, <laughs> Mitchell's holding up a little heart to us on the on the on the camera here, but uh, but yeah, thank you for Mitchell to uh, 
or thank you to Mitchell for coming out. And um, yeah, we'll definitely have him on soon, probably before the World Cup ends. So be on the lookout for that. All right, let's take it into the NFL here. So it turns out that the Chiefs have uh, a kryptonite and it's the football team from Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals beat the Chiefs for the third time in a row, all of them coming in the 2022 calendar year. Furthermore, the 27 to 24 win this past weekend was the exact score of the game, which got the Bengals into the Super Bowl last year. And like I said, they played them in the AFC championship last year. If these two teams meet again in the playoffs, the, will the streak continue or do we have confidence that Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid will actually figure something out to beat the Cincinnati team whose defense isn't even really that good, but just seems that good against the Chiefs? Yeah, I mean, this is tough, right? Like, you don't expect, especially, and actually, I put in the topic here, the Bengals have beat the Chiefs for the third time in a row. This is actually the only team to beat the Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes, well, basically, the only team that's beat Patrick Mahomes three times at all, not even in a row, not even in a calendar year, whatever it may be. Patrick Holmes has lost to the Bengals more than he's lost to any other team in the NFL. And obviously we know his insane record as a starting quarterback and, you know, during the regular season and everything, it also ended the streak of the chiefs winning being 26 and O in November and December, going back to like three seasons ago, um, which I bet, I guess was Patrick Holmes first, you know, kind of the season that he, that he started. So that's a lot. I mean, that is a lot to overcome. And the fact that the Bengals just kind of keep doing it every single time really proves that, they've kind of just figured something out. Now I do think that, I, I mean, I, I think the spots that they've been in have been advantageous for the Bengals. Obviously we had at the end of last season, I think it was, it was like January 4th or something. So it was technically in 2022, but it was, you know, the, the, the end of the regular season uh, last year, it was in Cincinnati. It was a really good game. I remember, I think the chiefs were winning and the Bengals came all the way back and, you know, they, they, I think, you know, obviously kind of won the game, but it was, it was at the end there and, and a lot, could have gone differently, I guess. But but it was also like the Chiefs had already, I don't know if they'd clinched the one seed yet, but they definitely clinched their division and, and they were kind of going for the one seed. So it wasn't necessarily, now they were playing their starters. It wasn't, they weren't resting their starters yet, but it was one of those situations where like they didn't really need to win the game. And it ended up being a good game because I thought, I think the Chiefs thought they could probably go in there and get a pretty easy win against the Bengals. And then it ended up just kind of being a nail biter and it was a really, really good game. Well, then you have the AC, AFC championship, obviously, where, you know, the, the Chiefs come off that insane game against the Bills in the divisional round. And obviously the, the Bengals come off their win against the Titans. And you have the Chiefs up, I think, what, it was 21 to 10, like late in the third quarter, and the Bengals end up winning that game and, you know, outscoring the Chiefs like 17 to three or whatever uh, to end it. So, and pretty much the exact same thing happened in this game. The Chiefs were up, I think, 24 to 14 or 20, 24, 17 or something like that. And then the Bengals score the, the last 10 points of the game and shut out the Chiefs in the last, I think, the entire fourth quarter. The Chiefs didn't score at all. So that, I think, is is just, it's one of those things where, ironically, I think it's just ironic. I, I think that's the conclusion that I'm coming to was the fact that, you know, you had your, the first time it was towards the end of the regular season, the chiefs already knew that they were going to get the one seed. They weren't going to try that hard and it ended up being a good game. And the Bengals just won that game in the AFC championship. The chiefs were holding on to a huge lead. They didn't want to squander it. They wanted to get back to the super bowl for the third year in a row and, you know, kind of put it away this time. Cause they weren't able to do it against the Buccaneers in the previous year. And then you just had you know, kind of a collapse. Like I think they just sat on their, you know, on their point lead. Um, and, and the Bengals obviously kind of made a miraculous comeback and, and won that game. And then this time, 
this time I think was just a just a loss. Like I mean, the Chiefs were nine and two coming into this game, and they won all their game. And it's like they just always get disrespected to start the season. Then Patrick Mahomes shows that he should get. It's like the it's like the Michael Jordan and LeBron James thing, where it's like these guys are just so good at their sport that you could give that they deserve to win the MVP every year, but you just have to come up with a different guy because like you don't want to give it to the same person every single year, but like Mahomes leads the league in passing yards. He leads the league in touchdowns. And this is after they lost Tyreek Hill. And this is like after their defense got worse, I think this off season. So you're just keep saying to yourself, like, how does this guy, you know, kind of continue to do this? And I think that this is just a spot the chiefs kind of were due for a loss in. I mean, you're in Cincinnati. It's a, it's off a long road trip. And obviously, you know, like I said, you're nine and two coming in. You've won a bunch of games in a row and it's, you're going up against a tough team who the Bengals, as we saw last year, this exact same situation, they kind of weren't that good to start the year. They turn it on at the end of the year. They have a magical playoff run. They get to the Super Bowl. It's honestly happening this year too. The Bengals were really kind of bad to start the season. Me and Hayden had multiple uh, segments on the podcast dedicated to the Bengals and like how they look so good on paper, but they're not able to put this offense together. And obviously they have ever since then the last like three or four games or so. I think they're averaging like 35 points or something ridiculous. So here they are, and they're coming back, and they're doing so. It's like this Bengals team is really good. They were only two point underdogs, and they won the game outright. So I don't think there should be as much blowback on the Chiefs as there is. But the interesting part remains: like, what if these teams match up in the playoffs again? Could can the Bengals kind of continue the streak? And just the fact of just whether it's how they play, and and like Hayden said, their defense is not like should not be credited for you know like being amazing really in any other scenario, but it's like against Patrick Mahomes, they kind of just figure it out. So, which is obviously the opposite of every other team in the NFL because nobody can stop Patrick Mahomes. So it's a, it's a really great rivalry. It's a really good kind of just overall, like it's, it's just fun to see these teams play each other. And if they match up in the playoffs again, it's going to be a crazy game. However, it's hard to beat a team. We always see the, you know, obviously the, the, the kind of the major saying is it's hard to beat a team twice. The Bengals have now done it three times and they've beaten the team that is probably, I mean, over the last five years in the NFL, the chiefs are the best team in the NFL. Like over that span, they have the most wins. They have the most Super Bowl appearance, everything. So they've beaten the best team three years, three times in a row. Can they make it four? I don't think so. I mean, at this point, you know, obviously the chiefs are, are going to be in line for getting the, getting the one seed in the AFC again, having the playoffs run through Kansas city. And so I think that if they do meet again in the playoffs, I think Kansas city is going to win that game because especially because of how many times they've lost this Bengals team. Now they're just going to come in with, you know, with, with, with a fury and, and an intent to win that game. I thought they were going to do that this past weekend. I definitely did. I thought, you know, Hey, as much as, you know, they're nine and two, they, they can afford a loss right here. Right. And like I said, they lost this game and they're still the number one seed in the, in the, uh, in the AFC, but Hey, you know, they don't want to lose this game because it's Patrick Mahomes and he wants to win every game, especially because they've lost to the Bengals and whatever. So, but it didn't happen. So I, I'm interested to hear what Hayden said here. I know I didn't really give like a concrete answer. I literally think it's just coincidence that it's kind of the spot that each, the situation that either of these teams find themselves in, whether it be, you know, kind of prior to the game and the situation leading up to it, but also during the game based on who scored and kind of, you know, how the game flow is going just really went the Bengals way in kind of all of those situations. I'm not saying that they are undeserving of the wins that they got, but you know, I, at the end of the day, like the chiefs lose this game, to the Bengals chiefs are probably still gonna be the one seed. I think in my mind. Yeah. I think you made a pretty good point about the chiefs kind of just like sitting a little bit on their lead. It's, it's interesting because I think that the chiefs with other team and it, it, again, this boggles my mind. I don't have an explanation for this, but I think that the chiefs with other teams, it seems like with every other team they play, they don't stop scoring. They, they're always trying to score. They're always trying to push the ball down the field, no matter what, even if they're up by 21 points, even if Patrick Mahomes has thrown 
three touchdowns in the first 20 minutes of the game. Like they're always, they're still trying to always push the ball down the field, but it seems like with the Bengals, they, they aren't trying to do that, which for whatever reason, that's kind of just leading to their downfall. And that, I think that kind of what Matt was, was, was getting at in, in, in a way, what it sounded like to me was that like the chiefs are almost beating themselves in a way in these games. Like the, like the Bengals aren't really beating them. The Bengals are a pretty good team. They have to be a good team to be able to beat the chiefs three times in a row and beat Patrick Mahomes three times. But I, I still don't think that the Bengals are even really near being a better team than the chiefs. And I think that Matt's right when he says that the chiefs will probably win if they do meet again in the playoffs, especially because the chiefs will probably get the number one seed in the AFC and they'll have that home field advantage throughout the whole playoffs into the super bowl. So I don't know. I, I would definitely like I'll pick the Chiefs to beat the the Bengals probably any day. Like if, if you force me to put even just like 10 bucks on the Chiefs over the or the Chiefs in the Bengals game money line, I would I would pick the Chiefs every single time. Even even if they've lost five times in a row. Like I don't I don't know. I I think that betting against the Chiefs is always a bad idea. I will never bet against the Chiefs. And so that's kind of where I'm at with this. I know that's kind of a boring argument and that's kind of like a it, it sounds like a cop-out argument, but I think it's true. Like who would bet against the chiefs and who would bet against Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid, two of the best, you know, probably like the best quarterback coach combination in the league. I, I don't know. I, I think that it's probably, I think that most people would probably say that. And most people are probably looking at this, just saying, okay, well, this, this is probably a fluke, but we do need to talk about it because yes, it is the third time. And, and the third time is always a charm. So yeah. No, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it's, you know, that, that's pretty much the argument that I made. Like the Chiefs are the best team in the league in my mind, like bar none. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you kind of put together what I was getting at, which is right. The Chiefs end up beating themselves, uh, whether it be, you know, not holding on to a lead. They're going into the game and expecting to win. And then they kind of just don't. Um, so I think that was kind of your we, we combined our analysis on that one to make a really good point there. Next topic, last topic of the day is about the 49ers. So coming into this weekend, the 49ers were the second favorite behind the Eagles uh, to win the NFC and go to the Super Bowl. Um, and as much has been made about the quarterback situation, Jimmy G wins when it matters. They've been in the NFC Championship two out of the last three years. They were winning the Super Bowl against the Chiefs in the fourth quarter of that game. They ended up losing, obviously. Um, but now he's out for the season with a broken foot. And so Brock Purdy he looked pretty good coming in behind Jimmy G in their game against the dolphins in which they absolutely dismantled the dolphins uh, this past weekend, but will it be enough Brock Purdy kind of, you know, finishing out the season here, will he be enough to fulfill the hopes of a team that seems to be going all in for the season, particularly with the acquisition of Christian McCaffrey mid season. So this is the first thing I'll say about Brock Purdy. If you guys don't know, Brock Purdy was actually Mr. Irrelevant in this pat in this last year's draft. So he was drafted, at the last position in the last as the last pick of the seventh round of the NFL draft this this past year, uh, pick number one, 262. And if I, this is actually a little fun fact before I get into a short little thing about what I think about the, the 49ers for the rest of the season. If you actually if you don't know about Mr. Relevant, he's called Mr. Relevant because he is the last pick in the draft. But what they do, I think it's the day after the draft or. It's like one of the coming days after the draft, they basically spend a whole day where they treat Mr. Irrelevant, the last pick of the draft, like he was the first pick of the draft. So they basically just like give him all these like really cool things and like they like buy him stuff. And I think they actually send they send him on like a vacation, like a week vacation or some some sort. Maybe that's later on. But they yeah, they basically just treat Mr. Irrelevant like he was the first pick in the draft. 
for a day just because it's kind of like a funny thing and they've made this whole name out of being the last pick in the draft but um which i think is pretty cool but right so brock purdy was drafted last by the 49ers in in last year's draft and so he's a rookie right and and he was pretty good at iowa state he was iowa state's uh, quarterback he actually started as a true freshman there i believe and so he has a lot of experience like he he played a lot of college games he was pretty good there. He was never really like Heisman worthy. He just, I don't know. He, he kind of like, he was able to win them games, but right. Iowa state hasn't really been that relevant in the big 12 for the past few years. And so that's why you haven't really heard of Brock Purdy much. If you have heard about him at all, but yes, he's, he's now the starter for the 49ers because Trey Lance got hurt. And then Jimmy G took over and it seemed like everybody hated Jimmy G to start off the season. And like, he was, at one point fourth on the depth chart, just because Kyle Shanahan basically didn't like him. And then, uh, and then he, he ended up starting for most, most of the season. Everybody was like, okay, well, yeah, he's the one that actually wins 40, the 49ers games, which like, which was what Matt was saying. And then you got a guy like Brock Purdy come in and you're asking, okay, well, is he going to be, is he going to be able to do the same thing? And I, I, I think probably, I don't know. I mean, it may be because Jimmy, like if we look at the 49ers and we say, okay, well, how is this team having success? Jimmy G like the, the stats that he's putting on paper consistently, it's, you would look at it and say, it's not him. He's more of a game manager type guy. And the 49ers have the weapons around him to be able to make that work. And that's why we've seen them in the, in the NFC championship two out of the past three years. And that's why we see them have so much success in the playoffs against the green Bay Packers, Matt. But, um, but yes, like I think that if there's one team that could make it work with a rookie quarterback who was Mr. Irrelevant, who is who was the third string coming into the season, it's probably the 49ers. Let's be honest. So they're going to like they're going to try to make it work to the best of their ability. Right. Because Matt, like Matt said, they got Christian McCaffrey. They've been working during the season as well as in the offseason this past year to beef up this team because they know that they're in a position right now to win. So why wouldn't you make a move? like going for Christian McCaffrey mid season and getting him from the, from the Panthers. It's been really good for them so far. He's been, he's been a blessing to their team so far. I mean, he's, he's been doing basically exactly what he's been, what he's been doing in Carolina when he was healthy, maybe not as much just because they have other weapons like Elijah Mitchell, who actually just got hurt. So Christian McCaffrey is doing more of the workload now, but yeah, you take more off of Christian McCaffrey's plate. He's not as susceptible to injury. I think that this team has a lot of potential. Brock Purdy did pretty all right when he came in for Jimmy G last game. Um, you know, they were, I think they were able to pull out the win there. So like, I think, I think that Brock Purdy, he doesn't have to do much. He, he, he's going to go into this 49ers offense knowing that he's not going to have a lot of pressure on him. And I think that that's probably going to cause him to have a better mentality going, going into games, be more confident going into games. So I think that, the 49ers will actually actually succeed pretty well with him. Again, he's not going to, you know, do anything like Patrick Mahomes esque on the field. He's not going to do anything near that. But if you can win with a guy like Jimmy G, why can't you win with a guy like Brock Purdy? Yeah, he doesn't need to be Patrick Mahomes. That's the whole argument. He doesn't need to. Um, so I and I'm going to go out on a limb here. I usually don't make takes like this, but I'm just such a huge fan of what the 49ers have going on that I, I really do think this will be successful. And I think that Brock Purdy looked really good today, but or on the, in their game on Sunday against the, against the Dolphins. But there always is kind of the backup bump 
we see it a lot where the backup quarterback starts. Mike Way is a great example of this. And obviously he also had a good game ish against the, against the Vikings. But every time Mike Way comes in, he throws for 400 yards and four touchdowns and he wins the game. And it's like, this guy's the greatest thing in human history. Well, what doesn't get mentioned is the, the game that he started after he had that 400 yard game against the Colts on Thursday night football of last year, which, you know, made him so famous. He threw four picks in the next game. Okay. So it usually happens to where the backup gets in. They're like, Oh my God, I have to do something. And they YOLO ball it. And it ends up working out because the defense, doesn't have any film on them then they come in the next week and they're like hey the nfl is pretty easy and then they get their doors blown off so there might be a little bit of that with brock purdy in a situation where they were supposed to win against the dolphins but the dolphins coming in had won i think five games in a row they'd scored 30 or more points in all those games and it's like who's really going to come out on top here well obviously the 49ers completely dominated them and it's because of this defense guys i mean that's that's really what the key is here is the 49ers defense which as we know, defense wins championships can carry them throughout the regular season. Obviously, you know, maybe they win the division. Well, I think they probably still will, will win the division. I think the Seahawks are kind of falling off a little bit here as we end the season. But either way, whoever ends up winning, you know, winning the division, the 49ers have a pretty good chance to kind of run through the NFC here. And so I think that, you know, if, again, Brock Bart Hayden laid it out perfectly. Like you don't need to do much in this offense. The, per, the perfect stat about this. And again, Jimmy G, he finds a way to win in this kind of embodies everything about it jimmy g is 10 and 2 in games in which he threw has thrown zero touchdown passes so essentially he doesn't do much he doesn't make good throws and they're 10 and 2 in those games that just goes to show their defense is so good their run game is so good and i think brock purdy throwing a throwing a rookie in there throwing mr irrelevant in that offense is probably the best thing that you can do because it's run based and you throw the play option play action based on. So you're not going to be asked to be Patrick Mahomes. You're not going to have to do a lot. You're just going to have to be kind of just as good, maybe a little bit, not as good as Jimmy G who isn't that great anyway, you know? So I, I really like this kind of underdog mentality now from the 49ers who kind of have had that all season. And now they have even more reason to do that. Now, obviously right you know this is a third string quarterback and it's one of those situations where like they just kind of always get hurt and I feel bad for Kyle Shanahan because it's like every single year you know four of his defensive starters are out then Elijah Mitchell gets hurt and then Debo Samuel goes down and then his quarterback goes down and it's like he's just he's they're they're they go into the playoffs every year with like half their starting you know half their starting team on the IR but the point is the defense is so good that it doesn't really matter the defense in the run game are so good. And that is the fundamentals of football. Like if you can play good defense and you can run the ball, you're going to win a lot of football games, regardless of how good and skilled and how many Patrick Mahomes-esque throws that your quarterback makes. So like I said, I'm usually one to be, you know, prove it to me or, you know, I, I like to see it before I believe it uh, type of thing, especially when you kind of throw in a rookie quarterback into a team that's supposed to really go far in the playoffs. But with this situation, I, I like the 49ers to go to the Super Bowl even before the Jimmy, well, obviously before the Jimmy G injury. Uh, but I still think they have a shot now, even with Brock Purdy. And again, hey, like Hayden said too, he has a lot of experience. This is an older guy. He's not, you know, a Zach Wilson type, which I know we keep kind of dumping on Zach Wilson, but it's for good reason. Like he played two years at BYU and he had a standout year in the COVID year when they had, they played nine games and they didn't, they played like Louisiana Tech as their, you know, hardest opponent. So it's like, what do you expect Zach Wilson to do? He's going to perform, right? Brock Purdy played in the Big 12. He, he competed for a Big 12 championships. They were ranked in the top 10, I think, in his, his junior year after that. So he led Iowa State to really their best seasons in their program history. He knows how to play football. And yeah, he's not the most skilled guy. He's kind of just going to be probably a career backup. But again, throw any career backup into this offense and this defense and, and everything that the 49ers have going here, and I think you'll have success with it. So 
as crazy as it sounds, I'm gonna, I'm also going to endorse this. So so the, the uh, 49ers situation here gets the stamp of endorsement from Hayden and Matt, and now we'll watch the 49ers lose all the rest of their games and be eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, that, that'll probably happen. Just because we said it on the podcast. If yep. we hadn't said anything on the podcast, they'd probably go undefeated for the rest of the season. But, yeah. yes, 49ers might do it, but we'll just have to see. So that's going to round out this episode. Thank you guys for listening. We had, it was another really good episode. I, I always love having guests on here. I think, I mean, we, sh- we should have guests more often, I feel like, especially with sports that we aren't as fond of. So like when, you know, when football ends, basically was when we should have more guests, which we, we actually did that last year. We had, we had a, a, a variety of guests on the show last year during the spring. Cause there's not much to talk about during the spring when football is not on. And also right now is, is like prime time sports, especially because the world cup is on, like you've got sports to watch every single day at all times and it's good sports. So, um, so yes, we are thriving during this time, but that being said, we are going to sign off for today. I don't know. There will probably, yeah, actually there will probably be an episode this coming. There was supposed to be an episode last week at the end of last week as well, but it was uh, it was a pretty busy weekend for me. I don't know about Matt, but um, yeah, we kind of just didn't really didn't really get to it last week. But hopefully, we'll be back on track for two episodes this week. And so, expect to hear from us either Thursday or Friday. I that'll be like during my finals time, so I'll, I'll have more time to to do this podcast and to kind of spend more time, um, kind of putting putting work into it before we record because that also takes a lot. That actually takes probably like the most time is is thinking of topics and and kind of researching things that we don't know much about but that we need to know for the podcast so it's uh yeah it's kind of a process going into the into each podcast episode but that's what we love to do and that's what we're here to do for you so with that being said thank you guys for listening so much it is always a pleasure and we'll see you next time